There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi. It's more popular than being French. See you in there. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that often wonders why the word abbreviated is so long. He is the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are drinking Good Life by Billsburg Brewery Garage Grade 4 out of 5 bottle caps. This is an IPA, and it's got everything you would want and expect from a good IPA. And for you travelers, Billsburg is in the heart of Williamsburg, surrounded in history and all that Jamestown stuff, located just off of the Colonial Parkway. And this week's beer was brought to us by, first up, a big thank you to Seal from where parts unknown seal recommended some beers zombie dust and 100 million angels singing which i'm positive we have featured that one before but thank you for the suggestions and a big shout out to stephanie from shy town next to cheers to bridget and autobahn pennsylvania a big shout out to valerie and john in minneapolis next up a big cheers to sophie and a tiny little cheers to baby daisy and a big shout out to baby jesus and last but not least a shout out to martha and parts unknown crazy how these things come full circle and if you'd like to be in the inner circle all it takes is a round or two of some good beers and you can do that you can buy us around for next week's show by going to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button and they're finally here the be good be kind don't litter t-shirts they're on pre-order now you can order them you have till friday to get one of those also if you'd like to be a part of the horse people gang then you can also order a Horse People t-shirt, and that's at TrueCrimeGarage.com, and click on the store page. All right, Horse People, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. I think they're called Centaurs. Let's talk some true crime.
18-year-old Anna Marie Phelps had recently moved in with her boyfriend Clint Lauer in Virginia Beach. Anna Maria had frosted blonde hair and a penchant for blue eyeliner. She loved the band Poison. Now, don't get it twisted, sister, but that's not the only crime of this episode. Well, she had returned home to Emily. This is located southwest of Richmond to visit her family for the Labor Day holiday weekend. She was accompanied by Daniel Lauer. Uh, This is Clint's brother. They were driving back to Virginia Beach together. Daniel was planning to move in with his brother and Anna Maria to help them with their rent and to live near the beach. Apparently they both had jobs, this couple, but they, I believe they made minimum wage at the time. So paying the rent was a struggle Mm -hmm. and the brother wanted to live near the beach. It's kind of a win-win for all involved. So Daniel had packed up his car with all of his things. They said goodbye to Anna Maria's family who had warned them just before the two pulled off to lock their car doors and to drive safely. Now they left about 11:15 PM on Labor Day, Monday, September 4th, 1989. This is a two hour drive East to Virginia beach. Anna Maria and Daniel never showed up at their apartment in Virginia beach. Clint, the brother called his mom to tell her that they hadn't showed up as expected. And she filed the missing persons report. Around 5.30 p.m. the next day, a state trooper spotted Daniel's gold 1972 Chevy Nova in the westbound rest stop along I-64 in New Kent. Which is odd because they're heading east. Yes. I-64 is a 1,000-mile major highway running between Missouri and Virginia. This rest stop between Richmond and Williamsburg is in the wrong direction. The couple should have been driving east. The rest stop is 30 miles northwest of the Colonial Parkway. This rest stop had a reputation at the time as a meeting spot for drug deals and hookups. The abandoned car was on the lane leading onto the highway from the rest stop. So picture this. The car is basically half on, half off of the road. It's almost blocking traffic. The trooper was about to have it towed from the rest stop when a radio check linked the car to a couple that was reported missing earlier that day. This being the two that we've already discussed. Now, Anna Maria's purse and clothing were found inside the vehicle, as was all of Daniel's stuff. But Anna Anna Maria's wallet was missing, as was a blanket of Daniel's. A feathered marijuana roach clip was hanging on the partially open driver's side window. Yeah, it was like clipped onto the window. Yeah, it was later identified as belonging to Anna Maria. The key was still in the ignition. One door was locked, the other wasn't. The car had plenty of gas. I believe it was reported that it had three quarters of a tank of gas, full tank of gas, and seemed to be working just fine. So there was no reason for them to abandon the vehicle. Some reports say that the glove compartment was open. There was no evidence of a struggle. The car just seemed to have been left there for whatever reason. There were sightings of the pair, and this took place both east and westbound of where the two where the vehicle was found. Mm-hmm. But these sightings led nowhere. Now, I heard an investigator interviewed, and he stated, look, we, ha- we did have a lot of people say that they saw them after we found the vehicle. The problem with this was he said, look, 
this area at the time, there was a lot of partying going on. There would have been a lot of kids their age in this area traveling to or from Virginia Beach. Right, so these eyewitnesses could have saw a different set of people. And and according to this investigator, he says, look, they to me, they look like just any he other. He says look a lot. Well, <laughs> he says, look, they look to me just like any other kids of that age at that time. He's a, he goes, I understand that they, right. you could easily mistake anybody for being these two. Now, they set up uh, a search, okay? Police dogs were unable to pick up a scent of either of the missing individuals, and they searched the surrounding areas. This turned up nothing. Almost immediately, investigators began drawing comparisons to the disappearance of Keith and Sandy 18 months earlier mm-hmm. and 35 miles to the south. About a month after Lauer and Phelps went missing, Larry McCann, a profiler and special agent with the State Police Bureau of Investigation, told reporters there was, quote, a very good chance that the recent cases were related. A story in the Daily Press in October of 1989 mentioned each of the four cases that are now known collectively as the Colonial Parkway murders. But now their their bodies are going to be found. Unlike the last couple. Well, the issue here, Captain, is it's not until October 19th. This is when the bodies are found by hunters walking along an old secluded logging road found the two sets of human skeletal remains in a wooded area. This is about a quarter mile off of Courthouse Road, barely a mile north of the exit off of I-64. The bodies lay side by side and they were covered by a blanket later identified as the one that was missing from the car. Anna Maria's locket uh, necklace was lying on the trail. Whether she had left it there as some kind of signal, some kind of you know breadcrumb, or the killer had dumped it there, we don't know. The interesting thing here, though, is, Captain, while the locket was found on the trail, the necklace itself was, was never found. And because there was so much time that passed, their bodies are going to be pretty badly decomposed. Yeah, we're looking at a period of, what, 45 days? So these remains were found about a mile from the rest area where the car was found. State police sent four crime scene techs and two medical examiners to this scene. It was pouring rain all day long, so the the local fire department pitched in and helped out. They put up a canopy above the bones and they brought in a generator to power electric lights used in the search. It was very muddy that day. One trooper slipped in a hole and, and sank up to his knees. And the crime scene specialist painstakingly dug and sifted through it until they found everything that they believe was left there, including the victim's fingernails. They used several kinds of metal detectors that day and chemicals to detect blood stains on the bushes. Signs were found to suggest that the murder site might have been at the intersection of the logging road in the dirt lane, meaning that where they found the car is not where they were killed. More right. likely where the bodies were found is very close to where it's believed that they had been killed. The victim's car had weeds up underneath of it that matched those at the believed murder scene. Investigators concluded that the killer must have driven it to the dump I'm sorry, driven it to dump the bodies right? and then had parked it in the rest area going the wrong direction from where the two victims were heading. 
Strangely, Anna Maria was found wearing Dennis Daniel's socks and shoes. So this is very weird, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're partially, they're partially stripped, but she's wearing his socks and shoes. Somebody is one investigator had always wondered that several of the victims being found without their shoes on, if that was some kind of form of control, you know, yeah. that, that one of the, not only having them partially undressed or all the way undressed, but have them remove their shoes and maybe their shoes first. That way, if they take off running, it can be very uncomfortable to run out in these areas with no shoes on. You might be, you might be slowed in your attempt to escape. Mm-hmm. The killer then used Daniel's blanket to cover the bodies. From my understanding, the bodies were covered up to the neck area. Uh, the bodies were left outside for like six weeks, badly decomposed, as you had said. They were identified through dental records. It took about two days for this process. And in the course of those two days, law enforcement, they were kind enough to reach out to both families. And they said, look, we think that this is who we found. We've already found the vehicle. And we think that we found your two loved ones. We wanted you to hear it from us first, but we cannot confirm that until the dental records come back. They didn't want the family to hear this on the news and not from them. Yeah. The bodies were sent to the Smithsonian Institution National Museum for Natural History in Washington, D.C. So forensic anthropologists could look for hints at the cause of death. The best they could do was to identify a nick in one of Anna Maria's finger bones, potentially a defensive wound from from a knife attack. Once the bodies were recovered, it was undeniable in the minds of many people that Virginia had a serial killer on the loose. The FBI and the state police held a joint press conference in July of 1990, declaring that there was a possibility that the cases were all connected, all related, and asking the public for help. Now, the cases, Captain, were all different, obviously, but... There are, they are similar enough that there are some patterns and connections between them. So let's talk about the similarities and differences in these murders. So first we have all four were couples or at least appeared to be couples. We know that Becky and Kathy were dating. We don't know whether they were targeted because they were a same sex couple or not, but it is possible that the killer didn't realize that until he had already begun his attack. It was... Mm-hmm very dark along the parkway at night. Kathy and Becky were inside a dark car, presumably the killer looking to prey on couples may have assumed that they were in fact, man and woman. Becky's hair at the time was on the shorter side. So perhaps the extreme viciousness of this attack was because the killer was angry that they were two women when, when he had been looking for a guy and a girl, several people close to the victim's, strongly suspect that David and Robin were hooking up that night. This is the second couple. Yeah. And we know that according to some reports out there that Robin had had sex recently before she was found. And then we have Keith and Sandy who were on a first date, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. And finally we have Daniel and Anna Maria who were driving together to Virginia beach. They weren't a couple, but you know, there's much speculation that perhaps they had stopped along the parkway or stopped at some point 
maybe having something to do with the roach clip that was later found. And so we have a situation here where all four situations would appear to be couples. Yes. Now the first couple, we're going to find them inside the car. Second couple, we find outside the car. Third couple, we do not find at all. Fourth couple, we find roughly about six weeks later and a distance away from uh, the car that we find. Another similarity, all of these cases involved cars. Um, Many of the cars were left with open doors and or open windows, and some reported to have had the glove boxes opened. Right, which, again, I... I I think this is a, I'm going to play both sides of the fence here, possibly because the first murder being so sloppy and that, that they probably had reports saying that this possibly could be law enforcement, possibly could be a park ranger. This possibly could be somebody pretending to be, Mm -hmm. that could be something that the killer uses to set them up the second couple, the third couple and the fourth couple, because that individual is moving the car. Mm-hmm. And so if that individual is moving the car, he's the one that's leaving the door open. He's possibly the one that is rolling down the window. He's the one that's possibly uh, opening up the glove box. He's the one that's possibly taking uh, a wallet or something and putting it on the dash to make it look like this this person that's stalking these individuals is law enforcement. Right. If we want to go as so far to believe that he's sophisticated enough to move the vehicle and stage the vehicle, then we should think that he's sophisticated enough to stage these other things at the crime scene, at the vehicle. Well, and the reason why I have a gut feeling that those are staged, because if you are posing as a law enforcement, if you are posing as a park ranger or something, that is your way to get these people to, uh, your victims to drop their guard. Right. So, if you're set, you know what I mean? Like, so if you're using that to get people to drop their guard, then don't you think when you move the car, you'd roll up the window, shut the glove box, put their wallet somewhere else? Well, yeah, because you don't want law enforcement warning future potential victims mm-hmm. of this approach that, hey, look out for somebody pretending to be law enforcement, pulling people over or approaching vehicles. The third similarity that we should note here is none of the cases involved any signs of a struggle and the cars were largely undisturbed with the exception of the first attack. The exception to this is the other situation in the first attack of Kathy having hair in her hand, which Mm -hmm. I think we should assume to be the perpetrators as the FBI has not said that it was Becky's or her own hair. So this means that the killer somehow controlled the victims enough to get them out of their cars without actually attacking them inside of the vehicles. Mm -hmm. In three of the crimes, the victim's clothing items were found inside the cars. Kathy and Becky were found to be fully clothed. First couple. But the rest were either only partially clothed or in the case of Keith and Sandy, we don't, we don't know. We don't, right. But, but we do have, pieces of their clothing found in the car, quite a bit of pieces of clothing. So we could assume that they're only partially clothed wherever they went. And I wonder because with the fourth couple and not being able to find them for six weeks, I wonder if 
I wonder if the third couple, the killer, buried maybe in a shallow grave. And with the search, we've never found them. And so, therefore, that's why he didn't possibly bury the fourth couple. And just left them out covered in with a blanket. My other question would be, how far from the water are they? Because we saw with the second attack, it it looks to me, my speculation is with the second attack, that the attempt was to throw the bodies in the water and for whatever reason they washed ashore. And in the third attack, we have no bodies. I wonder if the killer was successful in placing them in the water and the tides took them away. Mm -hmm. So another similarity, all of the crimes happened within 60 miles of one another. Ragged Island and the I-64 rest stop are each about 30 miles away in different directions from the central murders on the Colonial Parkway. Mm -hmm. The crimes all took place on a weekend, and two of them took place on a holiday weekend. Three of the crimes were in September or October, and one of them was in April. So all of them took place in either fall or spring, none at winter or summer, and all took place at nighttime. Yeah, and then it makes you wonder... Is this um, killer, does he have some kind of job that they get holiday time? Well, and all of the victims were young. We should consider that as well. Kathy being the oldest at 27 years of age. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was listing out the similarities and the differences between the crimes. Okay, so that has us listed at seven obvious similarities in these crimes, in my opinion. There was one that that is tricky. There is one that doesn't really end up on either list as being a similarity or a difference. And that is the one that is reported so often in this crime that I think we should take a look at, take a new look at it for a second, because one that most people will consider to be a similarity amongst all four of these crimes is that the general conception is that there's no MO There's no uh, motive. I'm sorry, not MO. There's no motive in these crimes, Mm -hmm. being that there's no signs of sexual assault and there's no signs of robbery. Well, let's go back on that real quick because the first couple we know were lesbians, but there was no sexual assault there. The second couple, we do know that Robin Edwards had sex with somebody before her murder. Mm -hmm. The third couple... Cassandra's never found. So we don't know if there was a sexual assault attempted or not. And then the fourth couple, we got such bad decomposition that we can't even tell if, if there was a sexual assault or not. So we can't rule that out as a possible motive. No, we absolutely can't. And that's why I don't think you can put that as a similarity saying that there's no obvious motive in either one of these situations. When you do a little further digging here, let's talk about the um, the case of Robin and David. Okay, the reports are that we know, what the reports usually say is, we know that Robin had sex shortly before she was killed. Mm-hmm. And when they say shortly, who knows exactly what that means, okay, as far as timeline goes. Let's just say that means within a few hours. Well, I'm, I don't even need to speculate because one thing that I found was we have an investigator. Now he's going off of memory, but he worked that case and going off of memory. 
When asked about the situation of Robin having had sex beforehand and wondering if that was with David or could it be possibly that she was raped, he said in this interview, you know, and, and take him, keep this in mind. This is hearsay. This is him recalling this maybe 25 years after the case, after he investigated it. But he says, due to his recollection, they were working under the assumption that Robin was raped and potentially sodomized as well. Mm-hmm. So that makes that creates one big giant motive in that particular case. Then we have another situation with Anna Maria and Daniel. This what, is the fourth couple. Correct. And one thing that is often not reported in this situation is Daniel had gotten paid about $800 over the course of that weekend. It's Mm -hmm. believed that when they took off for that trip back to that apartment, that he had the $800 cash on him. This was never recovered from the vehicle or from his belongings. Mm -hmm. So we have a potential that there might've been motive for robbery in this particular case. Yeah. Or it's just such an amount that the killer just, "Eh, I'm here. Might as well take it. Now for the differences, the most obvious is the MO being different in each case. We have a strangulation, a throat cutting. This is the Becky and Kathy case. First couple. A shooting with uh, David and Robin. Second couple. A suspected stabbing in Anna Maria and Daniel. That's that's the fourth fourth couple. couple. And an unknown disappearance of Keith and Sandy. Mm -hmm. Another. Go ahead. Well, and I kind of wondered this because... In the second couple, Robin, she's only 14. So I wonder if the motive, if it was sexual base, sexually based, that the first couple, he he goes, okay, here's this lesbian couple. Maybe there was, now this possibly could be the first attack. So we have a situation where somebody gets a handful of hair. And was that enough, you know, of a deterrent to stop the sexual assault. Therefore, then we're saying that that's not the motive. Well, because they weren't sexually assaulted. But then we have this situation with the second couple with Robin and her being 14 and being young. And, you know, I'm just going to put that, put it out there. I know it sounds a little sick, but maybe that's not what, maybe this killer sees David and goes 20 year old man. And then when he gets to the car, sees Robin and she's young. And mm-hmm. that's not the type of individual, not the te- uh, type of sexual uh, assault that he want. He doesn't want to sexually assault a 14-year-old. He does, but that's not his type, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have this situation with the third couple. You keep on calling her Sandy, right? Right. Her full name is that. Cassandra and her name was Cassandra Um, with Sandy. You have, she was a model Mm -hmm. and she was a gymnast, I believe Uh, she taught gymnastics. Yes. Is it possible that after the second couple, he finds this very attractive woman and he wants to spend more time with her and he brings her somewhere else. Right. And that's why we never found um, her or Richard. Another difference, another possible difference is the actual locations. And now, Captain, you might say this is weird. You kind of included a similar thing on both 
of your list, both sides of your list. But I think one could argue it either way. While all the crimes happen within a 60 miles, within 60 miles of one another, you could argue that it's similar location. However, you could make the argument that look, two of them, two of the cars were found on the parkway. One is found on I-64 and the other on Ragged Island where they're all within 60 miles of one another, but could be considered much different locations. But 60 miles is not a huge radius for a killer to stalk the prey. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. 
New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. And customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, we're back. Cheers, everybody. I'm just excited that I'm not a Captain Soup Nose. <laughs> well, the Colonial Parkway murders fell under different law enforcement jurisdictions. To this day, the families of these victims cite the lack of communication and cooperation among the various departments investigating. So this has been seen as a major stumbling block. It's it's tough when it's separate entities investigating this being federal, state, and local. The families were so dissatisfied with the handling of the cases that in, in 1989, a few of them banded together along with families of victims in other unsolved 
murders in the area to obtain 12,000 signatures to require law enforcement to to renew the investigations into the murders on the parkway and in the Tidewater, Virginia region. They formed a group called FACT, uh, Family and Friends Against Crime Today. This was to push law enforcement to work together to find out what had happened to their loved ones. The members went to the media and wrote to congressmen and senators complaining that the police weren't taking seriously the possibility that all of the crimes were linked. The FBI said in 1990 that its agents had spent thousands of hours trying to solve the two federal cases that they were working Mm -hmm. and had met frequently with local law enforcement agencies to discuss the cases. Yeah, these cases are difficult, though, too, because... These seem like very random acts, four random acts of murder. That's why I wanted to take the time and go through the similarities and the differences between the cases, because I think it's it's a weird set of circumstances that, in my opinion, you have enough things pointing that they are connected, that there are enough similarities, that there is a pattern, that they are connected, but equally you have enough things pointing out that they could be completely unrelated to one another. Yeah, and you kind of see this with um, Long Island serial killer. A lot of people think that some are connected and some are not, and that possibly there's two killers. So is that is that a situation that we might have here? Well, and I don't think we should come down too hard on law enforcement regarding these cases that we've discussed because one thing that I found throughout this was the the lack of consensus about whether the four crimes were related at all. And this coming from both investigators and the families of these victims as well. Where do you stand on the possibility of these being connected? Ooh, that that's a complicated answer. My friend, I I think I'd like to, this is what I found. And usually when I have a hard time coming up with answers on my own, I like to just, defer to people closer to the case. And what I found in this situation is that you have, depending on who you talk to, whether it be law enforcement or family members of the victims, you have some people that think that just one case is different than the other, or that, you know, some of the cases are connected and others are not like, for example, the David and Robin case, local authorities are a couple two. Yes. Local authorities are convinced that the pair was executed by someone they know. Mm -hmm. So, and then other people think that the three cases in which involved the heterosexual couples, that they are all linked, but Kathy and Becky's, the first couple, the lesbian couple, that their violent killing seemed more personable. So it's not, you know, that they possibly were targeted and are not linked to the other cases. Right. Because they... Their claim is that normally when somebody tries to burn the body, that's normally a sign that they knew the individual. Here's the other thing, and this is really interesting. And this thought seems to be shared by families and law enforcement. Mm -hmm. They note that several of the victims should have been nowhere near the place where they were found. Okay. I think that's important with the exception of the first couple. It's believed that the other three cases that those people would have been nowhere near where they were eventually found. So some law enforcement officials believe that maybe the parkway and rest stops are just dumping grounds for different killers Mm -hmm. and that there's actually no connection at all. 
the FBI in charge, uh, an FBI agent in charge of the case in the late 80s and early 90s, his name's Robert Meadows, said the problem was that none of them knew what to look for. He stated, quote, if you think about it, which is worse, a serial killer or four separate killers? Sorry, I said serial. She thought I said <laughs> my, my whole story went away. Well. Damn, I, I love that quote, too. Robert Meadows said the problem was that none of them were sure what to look for, stating, quote, if you think about it, which is worse, a serial killer or four separate killers running around out there, and we don't know who any of them are. Right, and so this is very similar to um, the Texas Killing Fields, possibly, where it's just a dumping ground. Exactly. The the tough thing here, though, is that you're now dumping not only couples, but you're dumping their vehicle as well, Mm -hmm. and that becomes a a different problem. And so in three of the cases, you're dumping a... uh, or possibly dumping a vehicle, which, Correct. which makes it very similar. Again, look, if you're just, if there's three random sets of bodies dumped somewhere along this area, that makes a little more sense. Once you throw in the car scenario, that's a lot more time and effort. Somebody's going to have to get somebody to pick them up, or we would at least seen some eyewitnesses that said, Hey, the night that these people went missing, we saw this guy walking on the side of the road or whatever it was. Here's the thought, though, too. Is it such a big deal that they're not working together, that the law enforcement agencies aren't working together? Here's my thought, meaning whether they're related or not, as long as they're being worked, if, in fact, it turns out that it is the work of one serial killer, then if you solve one, likely you should solve some of the others or all of them, right? As long as they're being worked and worked good. Yeah, and it, well, if we have this hair from the first couple and we think that these cases are connected, this is something that's going to have to be answered pretty quickly because if we do have this DNA, as we know with all these other cases, a lot of people are taking these cold case files, taking DNA, and they're having them tested with ancestry. So we're going to get within a spectrum, you know, within cousins, within aunts and uncles of possibly the murderer of this first couple mm-hmm. because we have that DNA evidence. Now you're going to have to figure out, does this individual have alibis for those other couples? Are you going to be able to get him to confess to those if they are connected? Well, and here's the thing. I think the biggest factor that has contributed to the failure to solve any or all of these crimes is that the crime scenes were compromised. Evidence has been lost damaged or destroyed, you know, and we know in the first case that the park rangers smashed out the back window of Kathy's car. We have some other examples too. There are stories coming from family members that say, and, and, and keep in mind, we'll keep, we'll take this with a grain of salt because these are hurt loved ones of victims, but there are stories that have come from family members that say that at least one of the vehicles was towed back to the family and given back to the family and it was never processed. And in fact, that later when they came to take fingerprints from inside of the truck, inside of David's truck, this is days and days later that they took the fingerprints. And then later the father finds the fingerprint cards out in the front lawn, right? That they didn't, 
they didn't, for whatever reason, bring them back to the lab or wherever they were intended to take these things. Right, and these cases have been cold for a while, and I don't think their frustration was from the beginning, but I think because the FBI was doing a lecture and somebody made these these crime scene photos public during this lecture. I believe it was 2008. So everything's kind of resurfaced since then. Well, that was because the FBI had egg on its face and it needed to, to reassure the families that they are going to make good on this and that they are going to work these, their two federal cases yeah, until they're solved. Yeah. And I think they like announced to the public, we're reopening them and signing new people to them. But they also throw, they threw a local, um, park ranger kind of under the bus. He's the one that I think exposed them because he was at the lecture. Well, I think he, okay. So the way this goes down is in October of 2008, this is at a law enforcement training school in Hampton. Uh, the school had an old FBI slideshow of crime scenes from the Colonial Parkway murders. So the school's owner, the school's not run by the FBI. The school's owner asked this guy named Fred Atwell, who was a former deputy sheriff, to speak at a few classes regarding the murders. Atwell was very familiar with the cases. So while he's there to speak to the classes, Atwell saw that crime scene photos were being used in this training program. So for how long we don't know, but there were 78 images that featured detailed color shots of the cars, glove box open wallets out clothes in the back seats. Mm -hmm. There were also pictures of the victims shot, strangled slashed. So Atwell called the FBI to report that the active case photos were being used in a public forum. Mm Mm-hmm. The FBI didn't really respond in the manner that Atwell wanted him to, so he contacted a local TV station, which then later publicized the leak. Mm-hmm. Okay, so an investigation revealed that the FBI, um, this was an FBI photographer, had taken a duplicate set of slides before retiring in 2001. And he became an instructor at this Hampton Law Enforcement School, and he was using them for training purposes. Which, yeah, you have to use stuff like this, but you would assume that they'd be using cases that are, one, not of the area, but two, cases that are solved. Well, and before we even get to that, we have the situation of the Rangers finding the vehicle and then then the father finding the vehicle later. We already discussed that one. Mm, little egg on the Rangers' face. But we also, we have compromised crime scenes to the point of, remember, they find the lost vehicle... And a jogger later later finds the bodies Mm -hmm. or finds the body. So what does that mean? They didn't rope off the crime scene enough. They allowed a jogger to go jogging through the crime scene Mm -hmm. to find the body. And then we have a situation that took place in 1994. Now, I do know that we have said that there were no signs of sexual assault regarding Kathy and Becky's case, the first set of murders. Mm Mm-hmm. But there were rape kits that were conducted in that investigation. For whatever reason, instead of them ending up back at the FBI's office, they ended up at the York County Sheriff's Department, to which once they are, it's made known to them, hey, your rape kits ended up here, the FBI sent a fax to York County ordering them to destroy the rape kits. So even if they're, 
you know, even though there's no signs of sexual assault, let's say that there was, we don't know for certain that there was or was not Mm -hmm. all these years later, maybe that could have led to something. Maybe we could have gained some evidence from those old rape kits. So the first couple is murdered in 86, second couple in 87, Mm -hmm. third couple 88. Then the last couple or the fourth couple in 89. So everybody thought that's when it stopped. But there's another case that happened in 1996 that is very similar to the first murders in in 86. Well, and this connection is made from a man by the name of Steve Spingola. Okay, so Steve Spingola is a retired detective and he is an investigative journalist. At some point, some of the victim's families got together and started asking him for help. And he came to some interesting conclusions. He wrote a magazine article titled Predators on the Parkway, summarizing his findings in his investigation. Among these things, he revealed that cigarette butts were found at the first murder scene and that the rope used in the first murders, uh, the rope that was found on the victim's neck, tested positive for brine or for seawater. He also revealed that they had found a note in Anna Maria Phelps' handwriting indicating that she had planned to meet someone in a blue van at the rest stop. And this is the fourth, fourth couple. Correct. Now, probably the most surprising of Spingola's conclusions was that he believed that the cases were likely not all related. He did, however, link Kathy and Becky's, the first murder, case to a 1996 murder of a lesbian couple elsewhere in Virginia. So as if things weren't complicated enough, This was the double murder of Julian Williams and Laura Winans, which took place in Virginia's Shenandoah National Park in June of 96. Do you know how far away this was? It's a three to four hour drive from the Colonial Parkway area. Laura was a college student and Julianne had just graduated with a degree in uh, geology. They were in a same sex relationship. They were on a camping trip. Both were considered to be experienced hikers. They were found at their campsite just off of a scenic trail on Skyline Drive, bound and gagged with their own clothing, naked, and their throats were cut. The killer had used duct tape, and it is believed that he brought the duct tape with them, with him. Laura's golden retriever, Taj, was found unharmed and nearby. This case remains unsolved, and the, the FBI has said publicly that they believe there are substantial similarities between this case and that of the first murders back in 1986. And you wonder if it's some kind of anniversary killing. So you asked earlier if I thought that they are related, if they were connected. I think we approach it in this manner here, Captain. That We do have a lot of investigators that buy into the serial killer theory. And the ones that have, they haven't established a profile of their likely killer. And they state that he would be a Caucasian male. He was likely in his twenties or early thirties in the mid to late eighties. He is of average or above average intelligence. He has good social skills, lived with a partner, owned a vehicle and possibly had begun undergoing some kind of stress that inspired the crimes. He probably committed the crimes in his Uh, probably committed other crimes in his youth, such as setting fires, killing animals, and so on. And the pattern escalated as he got old. He's becoming more violent as he gets older. 
They also state that he is very organized, that he brought his weapons along with him. He controlled his victims before killing them, never mutilated or molested the bodies, concealed the corpses, or at least attempted to, and waited for long periods of time before striking again. Finally, this killer exhibited great self-control, refraining from taunting law enforcement with letters or clues like the Son of Sam or the Zodiac Killer. He, his killings showed that he has or was refining his craft and evolving. He got more efficient and less messy with each of these murders. It was even possible that he was deliberately changing up his MO to keep investigators guessing. Several of the investigators believe that there is a strong possibility that the killer was actually two people operating as a team. Now for the fun part, Captain. We get to throw some individuals under the bus. People that have been considered suspects throughout the course of these investigations. Now, I do want to keep in mind, everybody keep in mind, there's been like 130 to 150 suspects, depending on which report you read. Obviously, we're not going to go through all of them, but we will go through some of the more noteworthy ones, right? So first we have, and this is in no particular order, all right? This is kind of random order. First, we have Fred Atwell. Okay, as you might recall, Fred Atwell was the deputy who discovered that the FBI's crime scene photos had been released. He has a checkered history. He had two burglary convictions and had bounced around from one local law enforcement role to another. Mm-hmm. Apparently, background checks weren't a thing when they were hiring these officers. In any event, Atwell was a deputy at the uh, Gloucester County Sheriff's Department, which was apparently known to have employed some questionable characters at the time of the murders. After the crime scene photo photo debacle, Atwell inserted himself into the Parkway cases, befriending the families and trying to act as a go-between with his supposed law enforcement connections. Eventually, Atwell's true character emerged, and he was arrested in 2011 for fraud, for stealing money that he had raised in a phony car raffle on the pretense of contributing the money to the Colonial Parkway Victims Fund. Later that year, he was arrested again for robbing a woman at gunpoint. Atwell admitted that he had been looked at as a suspect, possible suspect in the crimes, but he has vehemently denied any involvement. He claims that the FBI labeled him a suspect as retaliation for his public disclosure of the leaked crime scene photos. Yeah. Or the fact that you're a piece of shit for trying to raise money for dead people. And then you steal the money. That's pretty shady. I'm going to kind of look into you after that. Fred Atwell. Well, you can feel safe and feel good somewhat to know that Fred Atwell remains safe. He remains in prison for the fraud charges and the robbery convictions. He is scheduled to be released in 2020. Then we have Ronald Little. But hold on. The the problem with Fred is the fact that he would they would have had they would have collected his DNA and I think if the FBI really thought Fred was an, a suspect they would be testing the DNA they found on the hair in the first murders. Ronald Little was a 32-year-old convicted felon from New Zealand who somehow managed to hide his criminal record and gain entry into the United States. He ended up in the Newport News area and worked as a private investigator. He had owned and operated a security company that provided security for local businesses. He had permits to carry guns. 
Liberty Security employed law enforcement officers as security guards. So Liberty Security is his company, all right? And they're employing law enforcement officers as some of their security guards. This is not an uncommon practice. This included uh, Fred Atwell, for one. Furthermore, Liberty has some strange connections to the Parkway cases, and that being Robin Edwards's mother, Bonnie. She was part of the second murder case. Right. She worked at Liberty Security at one point, and I believe she worked there at the time of the murders. Terry Haley, this is Sandy's sister, dated a man named Steve Blackman who worked at Liberty Security. We will talk more about Steve in a little bit. But in 1988, Ron Little sent out letters to congressmen and local politicians and the media saying that he had been he was being railroaded by the FBI for the Parkway cases. Specifically, he stated that he was being targeted as a suspect in the killings of Robin Edwards and David Noblin. He also said that the FBI had looked at him for the Keith and Sandy disappearance. Now, the weird thing about this is he's sending out all these letters. According to law enforcement and according to the FBI, they never had looked at this guy. They didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe he wanted to be looked at. Take a peek. (laughs) Well, take a peek behind the curtain. (laughs) He, the officials denied that he was a suspect in any of the crimes, but little was taken into custody in May of 1989. Um, so he, or you also wonder, wait, okay, hold on before you get to the next one. You also wonder somebody just messing with him, like calling him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like this is the FBI. Where were you? You son of a bitch. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up. I never thought about that, but knowing what I know about this individual, it's likely that he had enemies, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody might want to have wanted to have messed with him. We do have to keep in mind though. He was eventually arrested and this was in May of 1989. So he could not be responsible for, uh, Anna Maria and, and Daniel's killing. Okay. Right. He, he was not out walking around by the time the fourth case went down. Again, I assume that if the FBI thinks that you're a suspect in this case, they're testing your DNA. Yeah. It, well, this thing came about. I don't know if his DNA ever would have been tested mm-hmm. because he wasn't arrested in the traditional sense. Remember he was from New Zealand and he checked in and got into the United States by lying that he did not have a criminal background. She is mates. Right. So they figure out that he's actually a criminal who got into our country. So mm. they deported him. Mm. So they shipped him back, so to speak. And then the killing stopped. Okay. I said that we would talk Oops. about Steve Blackman. Mm. Steve Blackman is a disgraced ex-police officer <laughs> okay. who kept getting into trouble and moved around from branch to branch of various local law enforcement entities in this area of Virginia, including the Newport News PD, where he was uh, held a position for nine years. I know so many dis- <laughs> disgraced bankers that have been uh, transferred from one branch to another branch. Well, he was also later employed by the Gloucester County Sheriff's Department. Mm-hmm. And according to sources who have knowledge of the situation, uh, I, I, I found this quote very interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. They say Blackman was a bad guy involved in drugs, underage girls, and general thuggery. Thuggery. Yeah. Mm. Blackman moonlighted as a security guard for Liberty Security. Remember, they have some ties to a couple of these murders. Right, right. And his buddy was Ron Little. 
He also dated Terry Haley. This was one of the victim's sisters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Reports are also out there that his his family owned property along the James River near the parkway, meaning he was familiar with the area and had access to a home base near two of the killings. Yeah, maybe we should search his property. Blackman moved away from the area in 1989, and the parkway killings had stopped. Mm-hmm. He ended up getting hired as a sheriff's deputy in Florence County, South Carolina in 1990. This is where he he shot two men and killed them who broke into, uh, some reports say his home, some reports say his father's home. What year was that? 1990. Um, he shot them 11 times. Now, he was fired after the incident because they figured out that cocaine was found in his system during the course of the shootings. Hell of a drug. He was indicted for double murder and underwent a psychiatric uh, evaluation. He did serve some time. I don't have that right in front of me. I believe that he only served a few years because it's possible they were able to prove that these individuals actually broke into the home. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I could find, I was yeah, tra- think about this. So you're, you're at home, right? Mm-hmm. You're high as a kite. Right. Minding your own damn business. Mm-hmm. Two son, sons of bitches break into your house. You shoot them. They mm-hmm. test you for drugs. And then they send you to jail. Like, hey, I'm protecting myself and I'm protecting my home. It doesn't matter if I'm drunk or not, officer. I think this is one of those guys that had a always had a suspicion of him that he was using his badge and using his power to help get him drugs and girls. And some of them might've been underage and he was involved in trading guns, stealing guns, dealing with briberies, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think when this goes down, this is something legit that they could probably nail him on and let's, okay, let's get him, let's fire him and let's get him behind bars. Even if it is for a short period of time, I tried to locate where this guy was now. I'm sure somebody better than me could do it. Like I said, I think he only served a few years, and I believe that he would be out of prison now. Well, and he would have been out of prison in time to, if the 1996 murder is connected to these, he would have been out in time to commit those as well. Well, here's, yes, and here's the thought, too, I think, surrounding Steve Blackman and also possibly Ronald Little. They were very close. And I think the thought is that there is suspicion surrounding both of them. I think the thought here is that these two may have committed these crimes together. And that even though Ronald Little was locked up, was deported in 1989 before the 89 uh, killings, that potentially the two of them could, could have committed the earlier ones together. And then maybe Steve Blackman committed the last one without the help of Ronald little Clyde Yee is an interesting character. He was a ranger patrolling the colonial parkway during the time of the murders parkway victims, family sources have learned that Yee had violent tendencies and had sexually harassed women by pulling them over on the parkway. A number of women had filed complaints against him for harassment involving inappropriate comments. What makes Yi interesting is that he was transferred out of the parkway area to the Shenandoah National Park, 
where he was stationed in 1996. This is mm-hmm. for the 96 killings. So after that, he was transferred out again, uh, and he was involved in a very controversial case where he manufactured evidence and acted inappropriately in an investigation of an Indian trade trading post maintained by the National Park Service. Ye reportedly passed a polygraph about whether he had any involvement in the Parkway murders, but he has never been ruled out as a possible suspect. He's weird because I've seen reports that say he's been ruled out because of this polygraph. Mm -hmm. The thing I want to point out here is there are a lot of stories that include Clyde Yee as being one of the first responders to the first murder scene. And remember where we said it's unclear which ranger broke the window on the hatchback to gain access to the vehicle. Mm -hmm. There are some people that think that Clyde Yee was that individual. Right. And that maybe it is on the surface. It looks like, Hey, I'm trying to help the situation, but boom, I'm also contaminating the crime scene at the same time for something that I may have been involved in. Right. So he's weird because you can place him in the area of the parkway at the time of the two parkway murders. And then you could place him as working in the area of the Shenandoah murders that took place in 96. So, and he's a Caucasian. He, yes. And he is, um, furthermore, a ranger, you know, he would have that ability, ability to pull people over to approach cars. He would have a V he would have a gun on him. So, right. But again, if you're moving these vehicles, why not just take the time to shut the glove box? uh Why not roll up the window? Why not take the time to do that? Right. Right. I see what you're saying. He would only technically be connected to three of these potentially five double homicides, in my opinion. Then we have another interesting guy. This is Daryl David Rice. Daryl Strawberry. He's a former computer programmer who pled guilty in 1998 to an abduction charge in which he was accused of verbally and physically assaulting a female bicyclist in the Shenandoah National Park. Mm -hmm. She avoided being forced into his truck. She states he was going to try to kill me. Uh, When she flees him, he tries to run her over with his truck. Investigators later discovered hand and leg restraints inside Rice's vehicle. He was sentenced to 136 months in prison on that conviction. While in prison, he made comments that could be seen as implicating himself in the 1996 double murder of Julianne and Laura in the national park. He was known to frequent the park as a biker and hiker. And in fact, this is interesting about David, uh, Daryl David Rice. Mm -hmm. Okay. He may be guilty of one of these crimes. And here's why, because there was videotape. There was videotape evidence of him having entered the park on the days that the murders were committed in 1996. Mm-hmm. A grand jury indicted him for those murders, but he was eventually freed because uh, unknown male DNA on hairs found on the duct tape binding the victims did not match Rice's DNA. Oh, so now if we have this hair, can we please test it against the, the first crime scene? from 10 years prior. Well, and here's the thing that I want to be clear on, on this 1996 double homicide. In my opinion, this, this evidence, this hair found on the duct tape does not exclude him. It just, it just causes 
it causes problems with getting him convicted. So he does remain remain a strong suspect in that case. Rice was cleared for the Colonial Parkway murders, although investigators would not disclose why or how he was ruled out. But they may have his DNA, like you said. And if they have DNA from one or more of the crime scenes, maybe this is how they were able to rule him out. All right, one more suspect. Michael Nicolaua. So he's a strong suspect. He lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, around the time of the crimes, where he was an undercover officer. Mm -hmm. This is for the Charlottesville PD for for a period of time. Nicoloa is the main suspect in the Connecticut River Valley killings as well, and suspected in the disappearance of his first wife. He killed himself in Florida after having murdered his second wife and his stepdaughter. There's not a lot of information tying this guy to these actual cases other than the fact that he's a known murderer that lived in the area at the time and he's also suspected in another string of murders that took place not too far away. So how many suspects do we have in this thing? Different reports. The the reports vary, but I've seen as little as 130 to as many as 150. So just meaning that there's freaks everywhere. So lock your doors, be safe, don't get murdered couple of theories though here captain we've talked about you know kind of been all over the shop with the theories throughout the coverage of these cases but one that i want to mention is there's one so-called theory that i find extremely interesting and this is the watermen theory this theory developed largely because of one the locations of the murders were all near waterways mm-hmm. and two the diesel fuel that was found at the first murder scene Diesel fuel not being super common. So some experts have been led to believe that the diesel fuel, which is used primarily to use in a lot of cases to power boats, Mm -hmm. was something that the killer had happened to have with him when he committed that first set of murders. And traveling by boat would also explain how the killer would manage to escape without being seen on walking on the, on the parkway or risk leaving his car somewhere else while he killed his victims and then returned to it. This too could mean that it were, it was two men working together, traveling by boat to and from these different crime scenes. And one thing to back that up is in the first set of murders, they were strongly looking at this waterman theory. And we know that law enforcement and FBI, they surveyed watermen in the area. They were looking for what they said were two men fitting what they thought they were looking for. Okay. One thing that they found at the first crime scene was they state that nautical line was found in the hair of one of the victims. Right. One of the victims was in the Navy, right? Well, she didn't, she had been discharged from the Navy at that point. Mm -hmm. She was a stockbroker. So there's a couple of other theories and this kind of revolves around the the time frame of these murders okay and when these the times of when these crimes took place and the thought being that it could be a federal employee because we have murders that took place two on the weekend and two right before or just after a long holiday weekend somebody that would have been working in the area and would not have had to have had their time accounted for during the course of those four murders For you to believe this theory, then you have to believe that the 96 double homicide in the park was not 
related or linked to the first four double homicide cases. And why do you have to believe that? Well, I guess that you don't have to believe it. Um, I'm just going off of the theory here is that it was a federal employee based off of the, the dates, the likely dates of when these first four homicides, mm-hmm. double homicides were committed. Right. And that the one in 90, on- the one in 96, mm-hmm. we don't know exactly what day they were killed on. The, this camping trip was quite extensive one. Uh, and, and two, like I said, I guess you don't have to say that they weren't involved in the 96 where this theory originates based off of the first four double homicides, still basing the idea of this theory around the murders having taken place on a weekend or just before or just after a weekend. Mm -hmm. There's some thought in a theory out there that this, the perpetrator may have been a William and Mary college student because all of these dates line up with the college calendar the William and Mary college calendar, Mm -hmm. meaning the person wouldn't have been in class or wouldn't have had class uh, the following day. The other thing too, that's interesting about that is the first four murders take place within a four year time span, which would be, you know, considered by many to be the average, the the average stay of an out of town college student. Mm -hmm. So the thought here being that a college student moves into the area for whatever reason kills during the course of their time at William and Mary. And then after the final killing graduates and moves away and either starts killing in another city at some point, or it was a pair of college students that once their time away from, you know, was done with one another that they stopped killing altogether. So what's your final thoughts on the colonial parkway murders? Super fascinating case. This is one that has always intrigued me. And I, I've, I look at it, a little different each time uh, as to whether they're connected or not. I think the problem here is that they're not connected. Mm-hmm. I actually think that that might be more of the issue. And I think that they're, I don't want to say they're, they're all separate cases. I think there's a chance that one or two or three of them might be somehow linked. Mm-hmm. But I think that there are cases in here that are different. And the ones that, that look different to me the second double homicide where we have the possible motive of rape of the female victim. Mm-hmm. I think that that presents a whole new variable that we don't different see, weapon as well. Yeah. That we didn't see in the other crimes. I think that the local police theory there might be somewhat correct. And their thought is that somebody they knew got them out of the, the vehicle and shot them, meaning they might've been there to meet somebody. And we have David's father who has said time and time again, look, this ragged Island, this was a place known for uh, teenagers to hang out and do drugs, to purchase drugs. There is some thought that maybe the two of them, Hey, I pick up this girl that I barely know. Let's go out to this Island. Let's party. Let's have a really good time. Right. And the thought here is that maybe they made a phone call to somebody to purchase some drugs. Hey, meet me out on ragged Island. And for whatever reason, that thing turned wrong. And there's one individual in particular, and the police haven't really released a lot of information on this individual because this is speculation. But there is a guy that they refer to as drug dealer and rapist Washington. Okay. They think that he is a possible 
very strong suspect in that second double homicide. He somehow knew the female victim. And there was rumor that he had told somebody that he wanted to, that he wanted to rape her and he might want it to rape and kill her. Mm. There was a witness that led law enforcement to this guy that we only know as quote drug dealer and rapist Washington. But the local police theory is that this Washington guy shows up on ragged Island to sell them drugs And when he's there, he decides he's going to rape the victim and it turns into a situation where he has to shoot the female victim and the male victim execution style. Okay, so it's interesting that there is a strong suspect there. Now, the witness that led local police to this guy, conveniently for this Washington guy, this eyewitness is no longer around. He's dead. Mm -hmm. And then we have a situation where with the fourth homicide, the fourth double homicide. There was a suspect in this case, and his name is Joseph Godsey. Joseph Godsey knew the male victim and may have known the female victim, but it's believed that Godsey knew that the male victim would have $800 cash on him at that time. And that Godsey had somehow either intercepted these two individuals that were traveling or had met up with them at the rest stop took them out into the woods and killed them there and then dumped the car near the rest stop. So I think we have a situation here where a couple of these cases might not in fact be linked. And I think that the, the, the argument and the squabble of them having been linked or not being linked back and forth, back and forth. I think that that has been a major stumbling block in, in, in these cases. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing in all these cases that, that the reason why, people link them so much and it's hard to not want to link them is because it always seems like it's like a traffic stop. Mm-hmm. Their cars are always left in some disarray of a traffic stop. Yeah. And I think with this one, maybe if one of these are solved soon, I wouldn't be surprised. Don't, don't jump to the conclusion that if one case out of this series is solved soon, that the rest are going to follow right behind it. Can't thank you guys enough for sharing on social media and telling friends and family about the show. It's really helping us grow. And for all of our old episodes, they are available for free on the Stitcher app. And for our other show, Off the Record, only available on Stitcher Premium. You can check out Stitcher Premium for a free month of listening by going to stitcherpremium.com slash truecrimegarage and use promo code garage. Until next time. Be good, be kind, and don't let it. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. 
Learn more at funturns50.com.